Welcome to this encore edition of St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 1968, Jane Elliott was a teacher in a small, all-white Iowa town. On the day after the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., she conducted an exercise that changed her third-grade students forever. The now-famous Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise showed Elliott's students how irrational prejudice was. It later became the subject of the Peabody Award-winning film, The Eye of the Storm. Jane Elliott joined me last September to talk about it. She's an internationally known teacher, lecturer, and diversity trainer. And she was in St. Louis to kick off Diversity Week at Washington University's medical campus. I first asked Jane whether she remembered where she was when she learned that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. I can't remember that day without getting sick to my stomach. I was coming home from school. We were, it was in April, we were studying the Indian unit in order to have something to keep the kids interested in April because, you know, the sap is running and they want to get out. And so we did the Indian unit. And we were, we had, my previous year's students had made a teepee. I was taking it home to wash and dry it. And the next day we were going to paint Indian symbols on it, chosen by white folks. We were going to read Indian poetry written by white folks. We were going to sing Indian songs written by white folks. And we were going to learn the Sioux Indian prayer, which was taught to the Native Americans by white folks, which says, Oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. Hmm. I walked into my house that night and the telephone was ringing. I answered the telephone. It was my sister. She said, do you have your television on? I said, no. She said, you better turn it on. I said, why? She said, because he, he, we shot him. I said, who'd we shoot this time? Because we were in a let's shoot people mode at that time. There'd been a lot of assassinations. Yes, it was like a joke. And she said, it was Martin Luther King Jr. And then all the joke was over. Mm-hmm. All the laughter was done because, you see, for me, Martin Luther King Jr. represented hope. And for me, hope is an acronym for holding on to positive energy. That's what he did, and that's what I taught my students about him. And he had been our person of the week one in, in February and dead in April at the hands of an assassin. And I had to go back into my classroom the next day and explain to my students why Martin Luther King Jr. was in the street, why anyone would shoot him, and I didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I ironed, washed the teepee, dried the teepee, put the kids to bed, fed them and put them to bed, laid the teepee out on the living room floor, turned on the television, and there was Walter Cronkite interviewing three leaders of the black community. And he asked those three men, when our widow was killed, his wi- when our leader was killed, his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your people in line? In line? I was absolutely, that's not the worst of it, your people. Those are my people he was talking about. I was furious. How dare he ask that question? It's as if these, this is a subset of the human condition. I was just furious. So I changed the channel. And there's Dan Rather asking members, leaders of the black community, don't you blacks think you should feel sympathy for us white people because we can't feel the anger at this killing that you blacks can? I was absolutely enraged. I rolled that teepee up, I threw it into the closet, I shut the door, and I decided at that moment that the next day, if my kids didn't understand what we were talking about when we talked about the killing of Martin Luther King Jr., that part of my students were going to go through the day as black children go through every day in this country for one day, and I was going to reverse the exercise on the following day, which was Monday, so they'd have the weekend to get over it. Mm-hmm. So I went into my classroom that day. Before I went to bed that night, I said the only prayer I ever say anymore. I said, oh, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. I said it over and over like a mantra. Within five minutes after I started that exercise the next day, I wish I hadn't prayed for that. I did not want to learn what I found out that day. I found out that I was a racist, that my students were acting the way they had seen white adults in their environment act, 
and that I didn't know what I was talking about. So tell us, give us an overview of this exercise. You separated the children into two groups. According to the color of their eyes, only the color of their eyes. Brown-eyed people were on top the first day, blue-eyed people were on the bottom. Blue-eyed and non-brown-eyes were on the bottom. And you gave them collars to wear. That first year I put armbands on them. And I learned with a lesson on that one rather quickly because one little boy immediately made his armband into something functional. He used it to hold his paper, his pencils. I sat there and I watched all these things happen in front of my very eyes. And I thought, oh my God, this is a, a microcosm of society that I have presented here. What have I done to these children? I watched, I watched the, the Lutheran minister's daughter, who was reading at the sixth grade level, become unable to read because she had blue eyes. Hmm. I watched little boys who were dyslexic, brown-eyed dyslexic boys, who read on that day and had never read before because they had magic eyes. I found out how powerful racism is. I found out why we perpetuate, why we white people perpetuate. We need it because we are not. We are not more powerful. We are not more intelligent. We are not more. We are not more than. But if we treat one another as if we are more than for a lifetime, then obviously, if you do it for 10 years, then 15, then 20, we begin to believe that nonsense, and it's a lie. I was just, I was shocked and amazed and frightened by what I learned. We've got audio from the award-winning film that chronicled the exercise. Let's give that a listen here. You think you know how I would feel to be judged by the color of your skin? Yeah. I don't, do you think you do? No, I don't think you'd know how that felt unless you had been through it, would you? (laughs) It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Since I'm the teacher and I have blue eyes, I think maybe the blue-eyed people should be on top the first day. I mean the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. Blue-eyed people are smarter than brown-eyed people. That was a short clip from the 1970 documentary, Eye of the Storm, which explored Jane Elliott's classroom exercise in discrimination. Jane, you sorted the kids into two groups. You told the blue-eyed kids they were on top, they were better. On that film we did, but originally we started with the brown-eyed people on top. The only reason we did the blue-eyed people on top that that next year was because it was going to be filmed. Okay. But... Every time I do it with adults, and you I start do it with, with adults a lot, I start, and we, we don't reverse it with adults, because if you reverse it with adults, you've made it into a game. This is not a game. We have to know that racism is not a game. Tell us then what happened when you started telling the one group they were better than the other groups. They became better. They became, they acted white. And now when I do it with adults, I say to the brown-eyed people, all you have to do is act white. And all the brown-eyed people, all the people of color in that group, and when I do it with adults, are brown-eyed. And they know what I mean when I say act white. They know exactly how white people behave. They become domineering. They become judgmental. They become arrogant. They become abusive, physically, sometimes physically abusive, and certainly psychologically abusive. It was shocking in this film to see how quickly the kids turned on each other, just within a matter of hours of you telling them they were different. They they have been been educated in how to do that for their whole lives. White, white children know how to keep people down. It is part of our conditioning. It is part of what education is about in this country. Education in this country is not education. It is indoctrination. And we used to start at the age of five and indoctrinate students until they were 18 to produce good so-called American citizens. Now we start at the age of three because one of our presidents said, give me a child from the ages of three to five and he'll be mine for a lifetime. 
So if we start at the age of three with this conditioning, we can create children who are more bigoted from the beginning. Before you ever get them into the classroom, public school classroom, we can start the, the indoctrination. And part of what was, was just so fascinating in watching this experiment was in addition to people feeling hurt and anger, their learning was actually affected. Let's give a listen to some of the audio from the film. I use Orton Gillingham phonics. We use the card pack. And the children, the brown-eyed children, were in the low class the first day. And it took them five and a half minutes to get through the card pack. The second day, it took them two and a half minutes. The only thing that had changed was the fact that now they were superior people. I thought you were going to give them more. You went faster than I ever had anyone go through the card pack. You get them yesterday. We were the collars on. You think the collars kept you? You just keep thinking about those collars. Oh. Oh, and you couldn't think as well with the collars on. Are black children all day thinking about the color of their skin because the teacher has made it a mark of cane? Do you think that 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 is the case? They are thinking about that all day. I think they have to think about that. They have to be constantly prepared to react to what we are calling little little problems now. Mm-hmm. In fact, what we are don't get me started. I, I'm so <laughs> I am so angry at the new kind of thing that we're teaching people with this white privileges business, which is based on race. I can do these things because of, I'm white because of my race. I can do these things because of my race. Well, since we're all members of the same race, then if somebody can do these things because of their race, then everybody can do them because we're all members of the same race. We've got to stop talking about race and start talking about human beings. You and I are members of the same race. Every person in St. Louis is a member of the same race. There's only one race on the face of the earth. It's the human race. And we are all 30th to 50th cousins with every other person on the face of the earth. Now, Lots of people of color don't want to hear that. Most white folks don't want to know that. So I challenge them to get your DNA done, take it back as far as you can, and you'll find out that in your DNA, there is DNA from a country in Africa, Mm -hmm. every single one of us. We've got to stop talking about biracial and multiracial and talk about mosaic because those that we call biracial are really mosaics. They are made up of many different elements, something new and beautiful, made up of many different elements and something wonderful. So there's a has been a lot of conversation recently with white people trying to say, we're aware of the fact that we have been, we've gotten certain advantages for being white. And I think that's what they mean by talking about white privilege. But you're saying that, that makes you angry to hear people talk about that. They've gotten those advantages because of white ignorance. Mm-hmm. People of color know better. They know we aren't better. They know we aren't more intelligent. But they also know if they want to get along with us and if they want to make it in this country, they'd better learn to act white. And they'd better learn to keep their place. And we have had more problems since Barack Obama became president because white folks are angry. 30 to 40 percent of white folks are angry about a black man in the White House, even though the White House was built by black people. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. 
Now back to our encore conversation with educator Jane Elliott, whose famous blue eyes, brown eyes exercise helped dismantle her third graders' prejudice. She was our guest last September when she came to speak as part of Diversity Week at Wash U School of Medicine. Rachel Smith also joined that show. She's a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader for Washington University School of Medicine. And I asked her what about Elliott's work was appealing. So I would like to connect her work to the theme for the week, which is belonging. And one of the things that we as an institution recognize is that belonging does not happen serendipitously. Belonging has to be an intentional process. Belonging directly connects with the idea of inclusion and diversity and equity. And in order for this to take place, we have to talk about some of the myths that exist in society that are the complete antithesis of belonging. And one of the myths that exists in society is race. And many people don't recognize that race is a social concept. Race isn't biological. Race does not run in our DNA. Race is how somebody somewhere hundreds of years ago decided to categorize the human race, right? Different ethnicities amongst throughout the human race. And one of the things that we know for a fact is that these categories have changed over time. And as a result of that, these categories and race and and racism, we see these things manifesting within our community when it comes to health disparities when it comes to the life expectancy of women of color when they give birth to their children, when it comes to life expectancy, depending on which zip code that you live in, race is a conversation that no institution can run away from, especially when you're in the medical community. So it is our responsibility as Washington University School of Medicine to make sure that we bring in someone with the caliber of expertise as Jane Elliott to make sure that we are well aware of how race is impacting our work and what we need to do to mitigate its impact. Jane Elliott was speaking um, before the break about how angry she gets about some of the ways that people talk about privilege and the idea of white privilege. Do you share her thoughts on that? Or or do you think that's an important reckoning that that white people have to do? So, yeah, I agree with I, I agree with Jane in the fact that equity requires us to get away from privilege. We cannot have equity and privilege. They don't coexist, right? Um, At the same time, we have to recognize that privilege does exist. So what I like to call on my white cousins to do is when you're in a situation that you recognize that you hold privilege, use your privilege to create equity. Mm -hmm. Use your privilege to increase diversity. Use your privilege to increase social justice, right? Um, And this is a process and it takes time and things have to be peeled away, layers have to be peeled away. Um, And I do believe that the goal is to live in a society where privilege is not a variable. And until we get there, what are you doing with the privilege that you have? Jane Elliott, more than five decades after your famous lesson, racism is still alive and well. (laughs) Do you think we've made progress or have things gotten even worse than what you saw in 1968? We were making progress in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even in the 90s. And then a black man in the White House made white folks, a whole lot of white folks, really, really angry because that said plainly to everyone, a black man can get there and do it and do it well. Now, if that's true, then maybe my white skin doesn't automatically make me superior. Mm 
And you think it, that freaks people out. And it, it knocked the socks out from everyone who, who, who believes in the rightness of whiteness. And so we have to fix that. And we fixed it by electing someone who is as ignorant as you can possibly be where race and everything else is concerned. You're referring to our current president. He, he occupies the White House. And that says to some people he belongs there. And he belongs there because he has the right color skin and the right gender. That is not how we should be choosing our leaders. We know now that that doesn't work. We've got to have, we have in, the, the level of racism in this country has increased drastically in the last five years. No one would have been foolish enough to say that there both there are good people on both sides of that riot. No one would be foolish enough to say we have to build a wall on the southern border of the United States in order to keep those people of color out because brown-skinned people reproduce too rapidly. No one with any sense would say those things. But he is. This is this is a common, this is a common statement that's being made now because white people realize that within 30 years they will have become a numerical minority in the United States of America. We have to stop fearing that and realize that those people of other color groups are brighter, in many cases, much smarter than we colorless people are, much more willing to adapt, much more able to adapt, and know a whole lot about, more about racism than I will ever learn. My heroes are black women, like this one. Make no mistake about this. I'm absolutely serious about this. I think about what black women put up with on a daily basis in this country and send their children down the street, send them out to work, send them to school, send them out in good shape and bring them home at night bloodied and battered and beaten, put them back together and send them out again the next day hoping that something better will happen. How long, oh Lord, do we expect them to keep on hoping? We have destroyed hope with this situation right now. This is a practically hopeless situation unless people of all color groups, and there are 2,500 different skin colors on the face of the earth. Now, if you can think of 2,500 different names for races, you've got too much time on your hands, but go ahead and try for it. We are outnumbered now, white people so-called white people. We need to change our behaviors now because we're playing catch-up ball. Make no mistake about this. We have to change our behaviors today if we want our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren to survive in the future. Rachel Smith, um, Jane Elliott is, is speaking that she sees very little hope right now. Do you feel the same way? Hmm. That's, that's a difficult question. Um, because on one hand, if I give up hope, then then why am I doing this, right? Um, and at the same time, I have to acknowledge that I live in a society that makes it very difficult for people who look like me to wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other and to keep going. Um, I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I pray for my four children every day and I actually pray a very different type of prayer for my three sons that are African-American. Because you're worried about what they'll specifically encounter. Yes. My oldest son, he's 19 years old. And um, I'll never forget when we moved into the community that we currently lived in. Um, I would look up and, and every once in a while I would see little Ryan. He's, there's nothing little. He's like the biggest person in the house now, but we call him little Ryan. Every once in a while I would look up and I would see him talking to the police in the community. Yeah. 
you know, we would have like neighborhood barbecues or, you know, whatever types of get togethers. And he would be talking to the police, the local Chipotle. He's talking to the police. And I asked him one day, I said, Ryan, why do I keep seeing you talk to the police officers in the community? And he looked at me and he didn't blink an eye. He didn't bat an eye. He said, Mom, in the event that anybody ever gets in trouble that looks like me, I want them to know personally that they know me, so it couldn't have been me. He felt obligated to do that. For his own safety. That I, must have been so sobering as a mother to hear I couldn't imagine. him say that. I couldn't imagine tr- having to live my life. At the time we had this conversation, he was 15 years old. Could you imagine being 15 years old and being worried about your safety? But he couldn't imagine what you were worrying about either. Yeah. Because I told a group of, of students one anyway, and the three black young males came up afterward and said, I'm glad you told that story about the black woman. I'm going to call my mother every week from now on. Yeah. I didn't realize how worried she was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That's a lot. How, what kind of a burden do we put on black males and their mothers, and then when they succeed, refuse to admit that they are successful? Yeah. They aren't successful unless we can put them behind bars then they have lived down to our expectations of them. Mm-hmm. Jane Elliott, you said in um, a film that aired on PBS, I believe in the 1990s, you said if educators were determined, I think we could be very successful in wiping out the necessity for this exercise. And that was now many years ago. Um, and there were so many educators who were so determined and, and so many people who engaged in this exercise. Do you look back on that optimism and, and wonder what you were thinking? I still think that if we changed education, we could change the level of racism in this country. I have proof in the students who went through my classrooms in third grade and then junior high. Tell us a little bit about proof in the way they react and the way they act to racist jokes after they've been in the classroom. I'll never forget the little boy who's sitting down on the table from me at the lunchroom. And all of a sudden he stood up and he took the kid next to him, pulled him up by his shoulders, pulled him up, slammed him down, pulled him up, slammed him down. I said, what's going on here? And he said, he used the N word. We don't use that word in this school. Wow. He went on to high into junior high. My sister was substituting at the junior high level, and the English teacher came down to, for, for lunch one day, and she said, the worst thing just happened in my classroom. What happened? I used the N-word, and one of those kids stood up and said, we don't use that word in this school, and if you're going to use that word, I'm going to go out in the hall until you stop using it. She said to my sister, what would you do? And my sister said, I guess I'd stop using the N-word. Mm-hmm. That kid taught that teacher, and then she didn't get reinforced from my sister because my sister had been listening to me all these years and, and to my father. And she said, I guess I'd stop using the N-word. We could change. Individuals can change this situation. If anybody thinks that one person can't make a difference, they need to look at the president. He's clearly making a difference. Um, Maybe just not the one that you had hoped for. if, If one person can make a negative difference, then one person can make a positive difference. I have to say, as I watched the documentary of of you doing this work, which obviously it had tremendous results, and yet as I was watching it, I was thinking no teacher today could get away with this. You were basically teaching kids to be prejudiced against each other. It it kind of reminded me of Stanley Milgram's famous experiments where you were teaching kids how horrible they could be, but for a couple days they were being genuinely horrible. Do you think we're too afraid of, of doing things that could end up in the short term being 
painful. Of course we are. Teachers are afraid of losing their jobs. I remember being told in a social studies education course, when you get into the classroom, do not teach in opposition to the local mores. The people who are paying your wages through their taxes have the right to have their children learn what they want them to learn. That is absolutely miseducation of the American mind. I believe that ed an edu the, the word education, com educator, comes from the duck deuce, which means lead, the prefix e, which means out, the suffix ate, which means the act of, and the suffix or, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. That is our job, and you cannot do that if you are allowing racism to be perpetuated in your classroom. There will be no racist statements made in any classroom in which I teach or on any college. And when I'm speaking on a college, there had best better be no racist statements made and when racist questions asked. Because by the time you get to be 18 to 22, you're old enough to know better. And if you, if you don't know better, then I will educate you in front of a group of 500 to 1,500 students. And that should put the fear of God into people. No, it puts the fear of Jane into people. I know that. And I don't look like God, but God is a female. But no, no, God has neither gender nor color. Um, Jane, you also have done this exercise in institutional settings. I know at the Iowa Department of Corrections, for example. Do you think by the time people get to be as old as, say, I am, it's too late if the prejudice is there? Can it be stopped as, as easily, as, as clearly it could for these students? When you see the film, A Class Divided, you see a young man who is a, an employee of the, of the Iowa Department of Corrections. And after the exercise is over, he says, I had no power. I, I didn't realize what I, what I am. I didn't realize how I looked. Several years after that, his daughter called me from the school at junior high, and she said, I want to talk to you because my dad was went through that exercise. I said, is your dad brother Roger? She said, yeah, my dad's brother Roger. And she said, and he's right here right now. He wants to talk to you. So brother Roger talked to me. Five to ten years later. And what did he, how and, did he feel about it? And he said, it? I have never forgotten what I learned that day. And because of what I learned that day, I changed jobs. Mm -hmm. He said, I changed jobs because I could not work in an organization that allowed that kind of racism to persist. He said, I changed jobs. You know, what I've noticed in um, doing our work in diversity, equity, inclusion is that when people get exposed to this type of information, like the facts and the data, and they're still not willing to change their mind, it really just comes down to a point of fear. I'm afraid to acknowledge that everything that I've held dear and near to me for all these years is wrong. I'm afraid that how I've treated people is wrong, and I don't want to deal with the guilt of that. So it's much easier for me to have you to believe that you're wrong than it is for me to embrace this opportunity for growth. So you sort of have to but entrench on your beliefs. Yeah. Here's what we have to do in the schools. We have to stop accenting and accentuating reading, writing, and arithmetic. And we have to teach the three R's of rights, respect, and responsibility. Yes. Every one of us is responsible for perpetuating this problem. Every one of us has the right to put a stop to it. Every one of us has the right to expect to be respected when, we're, when we are being responsible in our behaviors. If we would teach children rights, respect, and responsibility, we would do away with racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, and ethnocentrism. I honestly believe that because people must be held responsible for their behaviors and whether they refuse to respect the rights of others. Does that make sense to you? It makes perfect sense. And, and if we start it when they're three, then we don't have to do these extreme exercises no, no, to teach no. people we, this. We can't wait yeah. until they're three. We have to start prenatally Okay, because Let's we start it. racism prenatally. A group of, of <laughs> midwives asked me to come and talk to them in Los Angeles. I said, 
why would you ask me? I don't know anything more about the birthing pro pro process other than that I had four children in five years. We found out what was causing that, and then when we, you know, we stopped having, but anyway. And so they said, no, we want you to talk to us about this. So I said, okay, I'll come in and talk to you about it. And the come to find out these are midwives who are midwives because they saw that women of color aren't yes. being treated as well in yes. the delivery room yes. as white women are. Mm -hmm. And they said, we want to be where there's children are being born so that they can be treated fairly, at least from birth, yeah. if not prenatally, at least from the moment they're born. Yeah. And Rachel Smith, is that part of what you hope will come out of tonight's yes. talk? Yes, definitely. You know, just thinking about the mortality rate of women in birth, African-American women die in, in birth mm -hmm. 12 times higher than their white female counterparts. And until you read the book, the, until you read the book, the color of law, you won't understand that mm -hmm. that is being promoted by the legal system in this country and mm -hmm. by the government in this country. Segregation is not an accident and it isn't all de facto. It's de jure. It is done by our legal system. You have to realize that. And people don't. They think it's, well, those black people want to live there because they want to be together. No. People of color want as good a place to live as so-called white people do, yeah. unless I'm very much mistaken. No, you're absolutely right. And, and I, thank you for bringing that point up because because St. Louis, we have a history of segregation, right? Even today. And also a present. Of yeah, exactly. Even today, we are voted one of the most segregated um, cities in the nation. And one of the things that we've struggled with is our once lines of de jure segregation have now become our lines of de facto segregation. And to your point, yes, there are policies and procedures keeping these things into play and keeping these things into action. And all of this rolls over into access and equity and distribu distribution of resources, right? So if there's no fresh grocery store in my community, the chances of me having high cholesterol and and high blood pressure, it shoots through the roof because what are my options? What am I going to eat? And the people who have those grocery stores know that. Mm -hmm. They know that. Mm -hmm. National Tea knows that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Kroger's knows that. They know all these facts, mm -hmm. and they know that they could do better if they chose to. Yeah. My husband ran a store in the north end of Waterloo, Iowa for years. And then, because Anna Mae Weems and her group <laughs> picketed the store, they moved the store over to the west side. The store went bust because there, there weren't enough customers to bother with. Mm. So that store went out of business. National Tea made a mistake. National Tea should have kept that store right where it was and respected its customers, yes. the vast majority of whom were black. And on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time today, but I want to thank you both so much for joining us. Rachelle Smith, who's a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader for Washington University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being here. And Jane Elliott, thank you so much for being here as well. Thank you for having me. That's an encore of my conversation from September of last year when Jane Elliott was in St. Louis to speak as part of Diversity Week at Washington University School of Medicine. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.